Hey gamers, this is Joe from What I'm Playing Now. I have episode 155 of the podcast that was originally recorded on April 2nd of 2017. Some of the games I played this week, and there is a nice list of them. Some Lunarchitects, a little stock game called Prospectus, Pyramids, which is a little drafting game, The Colonists, we got in two eras, and wow, what a two-era game it was. A little Fury of Dracula, and let me tell you, Dracula's Fury was crazy. I also talked about a few of the games that I want to play. Enjoy the episode. Hey gamers, welcome to the games. This is Joe Luzzi from What I'm Playing Now and welcome to another episode of the What I'm Playing Now podcast. As always, you can send us some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send those emails to whatimplayingnow at gmail.com. You can also join us in some conversations over on our board game Geek Guild. We are guild number 2440. On Twitter, you can follow me at What I'm Playing Now. Don't forget to drop the G like I always say. On Facebook, just do a search for What I'm Playing Now. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus sign. What I'm Playing Now podcast. And then as always, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash what I'm playing now. All right. Today is Sunday when I am recording this. So I will be headed down to my game store here very shortly for a little Arkham Horror. So the Arkham Files investigators of Cleveland will be meeting up today for some Arkham Horror li- um, living card game that we will be playing today. If anybody is interested, I know this will be posted probably after we are down there, but keep in mind we meet on the first and third Sundays of the month. For right now, we will I will let you know if that day actually changes to any of the other days of the month, but right now we're just meeting the first and third Sundays. So looking forward to actually playing some Arkham Horror Living Card Game and getting another scenario or two under our belt this afternoon. So let's jump into a few of the things I played this last week under the What I'm Playing Now part of the show. I made it down to my local game store actually quite a bit this past week, uh, several days, and a lot of good games played. Uh, one of the games was an extremely long game, which we will get to here um, in one of the later games we're talking about here under the What I'm Playing Now. But let's start off with what we played on Monday and one of the first games that I was able to show up early for and get in a three-player game of Lunarchitects. This is a really interesting game. It's a similar game to Glenmore. It is a tile placement, um, kind of like, I guess you could say, a little set collection, um, matching some different things on your board. And there's also a little bit of variability in the way the player order works because whoever is last in the line and whoever is furthest back is the person who gets to go. So if somebody is, if there are some players who are actually jumping ahead and taking tiles further along the track and somebody is just moving very slowly and just kind of following along and not jumping ahead and wanting those tiles and just taking ones further back, they will actually get to do multiple actions. So the way the game starts out, there's going to be a first player. They're going to The board is kind of constructed of different tiles and there's always a couple of empty spaces uh, at the at the end of the at the end of the board where the players aren't. The interesting thing about this is when you go to take your move, you can pretty much move clockwise anywhere around the board and take any of the tiles. You can pretty much make a full lap around the board if you want to to be able to take a tile. But uh, that's probably not the best strategy to do because at once everybody reaches the finish line, I guess you could say. There's going to be some round scoring, and if you don't have enough tiles in front of you or tiles that have scoring 
pieces or mechanics to it, uh, you're going to be losing out on some points there. I will say scoring-wise, the game starts out slower scoring-wise, but ramps up very quickly when you get into those third and fourth A phases in the and where you're jumping into um, some of the later games where you're pulling in like the the cards that are higher cost cards, but they have a much, much more higher reward to them as you're playing. So as I was saying, you're going to take your little meeple, move it to a tile. You will pick that tile up. You will then start building a tableau in front of you. And when you place your tile, the tile needs to be touching two other tiles that are already on the tableau in front of you. When you do place the tile, you will activate all of the tiles that it actually touches right then and there. Some tiles may give you resources. Some tiles may give you um, additional points or some money or something. Some tiles, when you place them, will let you get additional workers. Some will let you possibly have a couple of rocket ships. And some of the scoring in this game, as I mentioned when you reach that finish line, you're going to be scoring based on the red components that you have in front of you. So there are actually some red tiles that you'll be able to take from the center of the table to put in your tableau. And like I was saying, the rocket ships are red. There's also red crystals that you'll be able to obtain as well for scoring during that kind of, I don't know if I want to say end of round, but I guess we could say end of round scoring that's going to happen when everybody kind of reaches that finish line there. So essentially that's what you're going to be doing in the game. You're going to be moving your meeple around. Like I said earlier, you can move as far ahead along the track as you want. Whenever somebody takes a, a tile, the tiles will compress and then you'll fill in the tiles or put a tile at the end so that there's always a couple of empty spaces. We were doing a three-player game, so I think there were always two empty spaces of tiles between kind of like the beginning and the end there. Uh, but it's a really, really great game. I really liked it. The components are really cool. Very interesting tile placement game. Uh, like I said, scoring ramps up quite a bit. Uh, I know that there were some tiles that I had picked up later in the game. One tile where with the green resources that I had, if I could turn in... If I place a tile next to there and could turn in two of the green resources, I could get $14. And the money are your victory points for this game that you're going to be collecting. And I was able to jump up. I mean, at the beginning of the game, we started out with just, um, you know, collecting a few dollars here or there, not having a lot of red. One of the other things you're also going to be trying to do and having to pay attention to in the game while you're placing your tiles, some of the tiles actually have like a railway on them where there's like a double track and a single track. And some of the tiles that you're taking from the center of the board will match those tracks. And you can't place a tile next to one of those tracks if you can't continue that track and continue building it. So you really have to pay attention to the tiles that are coming up in front of you because there's also bonuses that you can get at the end of the game for having the most tiles that are surrounded around, you know, a single tile. And I think I only had one or two, and some of the other guys had three or four, which gave them some additional points at the end of the game. There's also points that you can get, and one of the neat things about the game is there's um, some tiles you're going to be picking out, which are the scoring components for end of game, and I believe those are randomized at the beginning of the game. So each game, you're going to be going for different scoring objectives. So there's just one more bit of variability to the game, besides the tiles being placed different all the time around the the center of the board and the way they come out. So a lot of replayability in this game. This is definitely not a game you're going to be able to play once or twice, figure out a good strategy. 
Um, I have a feeling that, you know, that there may be some things you can watch out for, but I think there's going to be so much variability with the tile placement because everything's shuffled up, and with that endgame scoring being a little different, it's a game that you're going to have to learn to adapt to as you're playing and not necessarily always go for the most optimized thing that you have done in the past, which these are the types of games that I really like. I have a feeling I would definitely be adding this game to my collection if you can get it. I believe this was a Kickstarter. It doesn't seem like it's widely available right now. It seems like it is kind of hard to get a hold of from what I was just looking at on BoardGameGeek. So Loon Architects, really cool game. Everybody at the table enjoyed it. One that, if I could get, I would definitely add to my collection. And then the next game that we played, we played a four-player game of Prospectus. This, I guess you could say, is kind of like a fantasy wizard-style type of stock game in that everybody's playing a kind of like a wizard and there is a huge crystal ball that's sitting on the table and that crystal ball is going to be used during one of the card phases where you're going to be dropping different colored cubes into there that will randomly come out at the bottom and they will affect the stock price of the cubes that come out and there's going to be multiple different colors there's about five different colors of cubes that are going to be placed in there and you can drop those down in there and it's it's very it's very nice looking and it's a it's a nice way to actually randomize a stock market you know an interesting stock market it, it does kind of fit the theme of the game in that everybody's playing like a wizard and this crystal ball is kind of like you seeing into the future as to how possibly the different um, prices in the in the cubes may be affected and the different colors may be affected but uh Let's start out with basically how the game is kind of played. So there's going to be a board, a little tableau on, kind of like off to the side, that's going to have five cards on there. These five cards are going to contain a picture of the different potions that are going to be utilized during the game for the stock market, you could say. And they actually have an arrow, whether the price is going to go up or down for that particular color of potion. And then there's also going to be a potion on the bottom, which is going to be the one that will pay a dividend. There's a separate board that you're going to be able to keep track of dividends that will be paid out once that color gets three particular cubes on there. There's also a board which will show the stock price of the different colored potions. They all start off at the 20 mark, which is pretty much right in the middle. They can go all the way up to 40, where they could possibly split, or they could go down to 10 or 9, I guess you could say, is where they will basically bust. Everybody would then have to get rid of all the colored cubes they have of that particular color that just busted, and then that color cube will go back to the 20 spot. But what's going to happen on your turn is you're going to start off by selling to the high console. So that first original card that I mentioned that has the five different cards on there, some of the cards could have some black cubes on there. Some of them may not have any colored cubes on them at all. And there's two potions at the top, which is, I guess, the high console potion cards. And you could put the appropriate colored token or cube on one of those potions when that card actually becomes and falls off of that track because cards will be moving from left to right on this track at the end of each player's turn. If there are black cubes on there, the stock price of the potion that's under that black cube will go down. If there are no cubes on there, the stock price will go down. But if there is a cube on there that somebody actually placed on there, the stock price of that particular cube or that color potion will actually go up. So during the first 
turn or during your turn, the first thing you're going to be able to do, which is an optional action, is sell to the high console. And selling to the high console is going to be taking one of your cubes and putting it over one of those potions if you so wish to. That would mean if you're looking for maybe the pink potion to go up and the pink potion is going to possibly fall off of the, to that tableau next, you would put a pink cube on there and that, then, that potion would then go up in price once your turn gets to the, when you're executing that future card, which is one of the later phases. Uh, you can then make a transaction during your turn. Making a transaction is going to be buying or selling one color of a particular potion. You can cast a spell. Each player is going to have a deck of cards that are randomly chosen at the beginning of the game. I believe you always have three cards in your hand, if I remember correctly, I think it was. And... The spells do various things. I'm just going to let everybody look in the rules for what they do. I remember one of the spells does kind of like lock out a particular potion from being bought or sold. So if there's something that you don't want people, if there's maybe a potion that's real high in price and you want to maybe stop people from being able to sell it on that turn because maybe it's going to be going down in price. Because as I was saying, you can pretty much see where the stock prices of the different potions are going to be going because the five cards that are in that tableau you can pretty much see into the future what's going to be happening, and I'll explain that when we get to the, the actual card phase here, which is going to be next. Um, but casting a spell, everybody's going to have to place a spell down there. If you don't want to actually cast a spell, you can set it aside, and you can actually do a couple of different actions, I guess you could say, with that spell card. You can cast it for the actual effect that's on the card. You can actually sell to get into the high console if you want, which is going to take one of your potions or one of your cubes and cover up one of those potions on that one tile that I was mentioning earlier. Or you can actually, you have a tile that's recharging. You can recharge an interrupt tile. The interrupt tile actually lets you kind of pause the game before somebody actually does an action during one of the phases to where you can maybe do a sell um, if the actual potions are going to be lowered in price before. So if something's going to bottom out and you have some of those cubes, you may want to actually just do the interrupt tile, which you then flip back over um, if you were to use that action to be able to maybe not lose as much money as you possibly would be. After you do the cast a spell, you're going to execute the current card, and this is where the whole crystal ball and cubes are going to come into play. When the executing the crystal ball, you're going to take the cubes that are at the top that people had placed on there during the selling to the high console phase. Underneath the crystal ball, there's a little building, I guess you could say, with a couple of windows in the doors. Those cubes will go there. Those will affect some of the endgame scoring that you need to pay attention to. So trying to pay attention to what cubes are going into the bottom of that is a little important. I think most of us during our first play didn't pay as much attention to that as we kind of really wanted to um, because there was just so much other stuff we were trying to pay attention to. Trying to remember what cubes were going into the bottom of the base was something I think most of us just didn't think about till about the last round of play. And then we sat there trying to figure out, okay, what cubes went in there? Um, but executing the current card, the current card, uh, the future card action is the really fun part of the game. Because what you're actually going to do is you're going to look at that card and each potion is going to be listed there and show how many cubes you're actually going to take. So there could be a card maybe with like three blue potions on there, a yellow, a purple. You're going to take as many icons as they show for that particular color in cubes, take that handful and drop it into this crystal ball. And the crystal ball isn't has um, plastic components to it that are actually going to stop certain cubes from coming out. So it's going to be randomized every time what cubes you're dropping in and what cubes come out. 
it isn't necessarily going to be a one-to-one -one thing. So you could drop three blues in there and only one blue may come out because the two other blues are maybe caught up in the cube somewhere. So they may actually come out at a later round. So for however many cubes that actually come out, next to those icons on the card is going to be an arrow, a red arrow down or a green arrow up, which will basically affect the price of that particular potion appropriately. So that's where some randomness and variability is going to come in in the stock prices because you want to see how many cubes are being dropped in of a particular color and say, okay, if I'm dropping three blue cubes in, maybe a good chance two, one or two are probably going to come out out of those three, possibly all three. And if there's a red down arrow next to there, the price is going to go down. So if you actually have blue cubes during one of your early phases where you can actually sell, you know, make a transaction and actually sell cubes, you may want to dump your blues because it's going to be going down in price. So there's kind of a lot of, you know, a lot you have to watch for. Also, you want to look to see, you know, the crystal balls clear. So you can actually see all the different cubes that are kind of stuck in the little plastic grooves that are within this crystal ball. So you're going to kind of want to pay attention to, okay, well, maybe there's actually, you know, three or four blues in there. I'm dropping three in there. There's a good price that this, you know, there's a good chance that the price of blues could really plummet if a lot of those blue cubes do come out this turn, if they have the red arrow going down in price on that a future card. You know, so there's a lot of things you're paying attention to with the game, which make it just crazy random when you're dropping these cubes in there to actually see how the price of the stock market is going to fluctuate. So after you're actually doing that, you can then look at the bottom of the card, which will show you a particular cube, which is going to pay a dividend. If you have those cards, you're going to get a particular amount of money based on the column of where the stock price for that partic particular cube is. After that, you will be able to make another transaction, which is buy or sell cubes of one color. That is, again, an optional action. You can then replenish your cards, which is going to be probably just drawing one more of the the cards from your hand and then kind of like moving all the cards down on that future card track, making sure all everything else is in alignment and moving on to the next person. So every person that has a turn is going to fulfill one of those future cards that are on that track. So you'll be able to see before it gets back to you, you're going to probably four of those cards, if you were playing a four player game, four of those cards are going to be, you know, moved through you know, before it actually gets back to you after, you know, your card goes. So a lot going on in the game. Really fun game. Um, very interesting graphics and art to the game. It has kind of a little cartoony style, which I think does fit into the theme of the whole wizardry stock market type of game that they kind of have going on here. I would say it's a it's a good stock game. I would probably pick Stockpile over this one, but that whole crystal ball and dropping the cubes in there and everything is just a really neat way to randomize um, you know, the stock market and the prices for everything. Uh, we had a good time with the game. Like I said, we played a four-player game with it. Everybody enjoyed the game. It was fairly easy to pick up on. The rules aren't too, too difficult. There were a couple of things we were confused at at the beginning, but after looking through the rules, we pretty much got everything figured out and played, and we enjoyed it. So don't know if this would be one I would be throwing into my collection, but it's one to at least play through one time just to see how the whole crystal ball and dropping of the cubes does work. So that game is called Prospectus. I believe it was a Kickstarter and it was a pretty good game. So those were the games that I had played Monday when I had gone down to my local game store. When we jump over to Thursday, we started off with a little card game. I made it there just in time. A couple of people were sitting down who were getting ready to play a new game by ILO called Pyramids. And this is a I guess you could say kind of card drafting. You're also trying to 
match patterns of colors along when you're building your pyramids. So what you're trying to do is we played a three-player game. So there are four different numbered tiles that are out in the center of the board, which are going to be your turn order is how it's going to be. So the first player will get to take the number one, two, three, or four. The higher number you take, the more cards and actions you're actually going to get to do. But if you take the lower number, like the number one, which probably only has one action on there where you can add a card to your pyramid, you're going to get to choose and draft cards first. So the first person is going to, you're going to go around the table and there's a first player token. The first player is going to get to choose when when they want to go in the round and when they want to draft. And everybody's going to get to take that appropriate turn order card. And then there's going to be, for our game, there were three or four different stacks, I believe, of cards. Because I think there's always one more. I think there was four. I don't think there were just three. I actually, actually, there might have just been three because I think there was only one left. So there's actually four different action tiles that you can take for turn order, but there's actually only three different stacks of cards you can draft from in our three-player game is how it was, now that I remember. And so after everybody takes their, their card as telling them what turn they'll be able to go, the first player then gets to take their two cards and add it to their pyramid or start building their pyramid. And there's actually three different types of pyramids you're going to be, or I guess three different types, three different things that you're going to be working on. It's one's going to be a pyramid, one's going to be an obelisk, and one's going to be a tomb. So the pyramid is going to be, you're basically building a pyramid. So you'll have to have four cards on the bottom, three, two, and then one to form a pyramid. The obelisk is going to be just a straight standing type of structure where you're going to be placing the cards on top of each other to just look kind of like an obelisk. The tomb is going to be cards you're going to be placing face down in front of you on top of each other that you'll then get to put into any order how we did it at the end of the game to try to match up colors. Not only are you trying to draw cards to build all these different things and then place the cards down into all of these three different types of structures, but on the bottom half of the cards, there's going to be different colored squares or rectangles, which is where you're trying to do your color matching. And at the end of the game, whoever has the most or longest color track in a particular color will get points for that. So each different structure is going to be scored differently besides all of the color pieces. There are also pictures on some of the different bottom halves of the cards that match along with a pyramid, obelisk, or tomb. And if you can get more of those in a particular structure than your opponents, you will get some additional points for that as well. Very simple game, very easy to pick up on. At first, I wasn't able to get too, too many colors to match, but then before you know it, I think I had a nine run in red going when I was building my pyramid. So it was a really cool game, very easy to pick up on. Um, Nice little drafting game. The art style is pretty cool. Uh, We had a pretty good time with it. This is a small, nice filler game, one that I wouldn't mind seeing hit the table again. It plays two to five players, and you could probably play it in around 30 minutes or so once everybody knows the game, possibly a little less if you're playing with, you know, two people. Um, Nice little fun filler game, but that's pretty much the gist of Pyramids. It wasn't very difficult, but it was actually a lot of fun. After that, we jumped over to a game that I guess you could say is a little bit harder than Pyramids, and we actually tried to do a three-player game of the colonists. Well, I won't say we tried to do. We actually did. We played two eras 
of the colonists and wow i haven't played a nice worker placement city building tile collection resource gathering management type of game this on this type of scale in a little while um it seems like lately we've been playing a little lighter games and some you know medium weight games i would say that i don't know if i'd say this game's a little on the heavier side but this is i would say probably medium to heavy um as far as it goes there's a lot going on with the game but I, when the one when my one buddy Jim set it down on the table, it just made a distinctive thud because there is just so many components in this box. You're going to start out the game. Everybody starts out with a tableau in front of them. You have a couple of farmers as workers. You have a meeple that you're going to be moving around this center board that is going to be built out after each round of play more tiles are going to be added to it and the first player is going to be adding those tiles into the into that center board which is going to build out your player board and this player board you're going to be moving your meeple around and as you're moving your meeple you're going to have you can move up to three spaces every space you move to you are required to take the action on that tile so you really need to pay attention to where you want to go, what actions you actually want to do, because there's a lot of different things you're going to be able to do on your turn as far as trying to possibly recruit and purchase more farmers, get more resources, expand your storage options, or just try to build some of the different buildings that will give you scoring later on in the game and allow you to do additional things once all of these other pieces are built. It's it's crazy how much there is going on in this game. It was it wasn't that hard to actually pick up. It seems like it's it's fairly it's not too complicated to understand the rules, but there is just a hell of a lot of strategy going on in there. So as I was talking about the movement, you have to you you can take up to three three movements and every every tile that you move on you do need to take the action now if you're someplace where you're moving if you if you're around tiles that you can't necessarily take the actions of you can always teleport over to one of the markets in in our three player game there were two different markets on either side of the board is how we set it up originally so you can teleport to one of the markets which will then let you do a market action which, which is a really nice feature, and then you can start moving from there. So if you also move on to a tile that somebody else is on, you have to pay a little tariff or tax, I guess you could say, to that person. So you can actually move on to a space that somebody's on, but there's a little tax for doing that. But during your turn, what you're trying to do is, kind of like I've said, you're going to collect resources, try to possibly build and expand your farms so you can have additional workers because all the different buildings you build will need workers so as you are building out all your farm areas each farm you build you'll get a farm worker on there you can move those farmers to let's say one of your stockpiles you know one of your sheds that actually is a storage area and that will then make that sh that storage area active and you can put more resources on there and resources are the name of the game because if you don't have resources you're you're not going to be able to do much on your turn because most of the tiles that are on the board are going to require you resources to do most of the actions that are on there so there are some tiles that will just straight up give you a couple of resources like maybe one ore or a couple of wood or something like that um, there's also cards that will let you or there's also tiles that will let you draw cards into your hand. And then there's other tiles that will let you place cards from your hand and activate those cards, 
which will then possibly give you additional resources as like an instant type of action. Or they could be a card that could sit out on the table and have a long-term effect that you could get maybe an additional resource at the at the beginning of the production phase that happens when everything that you have in your tableau goes through its production and actually gives you resources. So you need to pay attention to the the nice thing is as you're during during that doing that production phase, the resources can actually sit in the individual tiles that they are on, but to be able to utilize them, you need room in your storage area off to the right of that that production area to be able to utilize those on your turn. And you can move those resources over to that storage area at any time during your turn, but you need to have the room there. So building out storage areas, getting farmers at the beginning of the games is probably the the way that I kind of went about it. And then you're trying to upgrade farms later on in the game into estates and other and, and into other buildings to give you additional victory points at the end of the game, as well as give you different actions. And the farmers can be upgraded to from green to yellow people. Um, and I can't remember what they were actually called off the top of my head right now, but this is a game that... I, I had been wanting to play for a while. I have almost picked this game up a couple of times down at my game store. And now that I've played it, I really want to add this game to my collection. I thought it was a hell of a lot of fun. It is, like I said, a medium to heavy style game. The game did take a while for us to play. I think our first playthrough, we only did the two eras. Each era, from what I've been hearing on a bunch of different podcasts and a couple of different reading about it, people say it takes around an hour and a half to two hours, and that's about how long it took us. I think it took us a good probably four hours for those two eras for us to get through it and score it at the end there, but uh, everybody enjoyed it. It's a game that... um, a couple of people at the table already had, but nobody had really played it yet. It's one of those games that you get into your collection and is just such, you know, one on the heavier side. It's not something that can make it out all the time, but I'm hoping the colonists can actually hit the table again because I had a really good time with it. And I, I think there's just a lot of replayability with this game because the board is going to be different the way you play through the, the way you're randomly placing the tiles. So there's a lot of different strategies you're going to have to take. Uh, the different eras add different things. So once you get into the third and fourth era, I know there's a lot of different things I've heard that get added into the game that you don't get to experience during those first two eras that we had played. There's supposed to be a nice save feature to the game. So if you want to play like maybe an era a night, you can maybe do it over a couple of night periods in time. So you're not thinking that you have to sit down for an eight hour game of this, uh, which is a really cool feature. I You know, it's nice when games that are longer like this actually do something like that so you can actually revisit it and not have to maybe just take a picture and try to remember where everybody was and what it was, where you were at. So the colonists, if you're into heavier worker placement games where you're doing resource collection, um, resource management and things like that and kind of like, I guess you could say, kind of city building and trying to build a colony, this is definitely a game to try, definitely one of the my favorite games that I've played recently and one that I know my wife probably isn't going to want me to add to the collection probably because of the price of it but um, I'm going to have to sneak this one into my collection somehow and it it will be added in there so that's called The Colonists and then yesterday on Saturday I actually met up with one of my buddies Jim who actually was the person who taught me The Colonists and the two of us finally finally after months and months and months of talking about this we were hoping to have a few more people down there but it ended up just being the two of us got in a game of Fury of Dracula Wow, Fury of Dracula. He played Dracula. I played four of the Hunters, and I will say controlling four characters in one game 
is definitely not not an easy thing to do. I was confused at first between the look of some of the of two of the different characters, and I was constantly getting them confused as far as when they were activating and when they were, and messed up a couple of times on that. But other than that, we were we did not use any of the advanced rules for the game. There's for your first playthrough, I, I definitely recommend not playing with the advanced rules because there's just so much other stuff you're trying to remember for this game. But Fury of Dracula, if you're not familiar with it, this is a one versus many game. So it's normally a, it's probably best said as a five player game because you're going to have one player playing Dracula and then one player playing each of the hunters. Uh, so you always have to play all four hunters. So if you're playing with just two people, one player will play all four hunters like I did. If you're playing with three people, you can split the hunters between, you know, the two different people. And that's how you can divide up the game. I don't know if my wife and I would ever play this with just the two of us because, like I said, playing with four people, trying to control four people individually is just a little tricky. But I really enjoyed it. It's a deduction-style game where the hunters start out spread across the map, and you're trying to just track down Dracula and move around the board and try to figure out where he is, get your people around him and surround him, and then try to attack and kill him. This game lasted several hours for us because we were referring to the rules quite a bit. There were quite a few questions we had, even though I had watched a video and read the rules. There's there's just a lot to learn the first time you're playing a game of this. And I had never played Fury of Dracula before, and I don't believe Jim had either. He kind of wanted to play this game because he was interested whether he wanted to add this to his collection, especially with Fantasy Flight discontinuing this game because this kind of fell under the game's workshop line of games that Fantasy Flight actually did release. So this game's kind of going to be hard to get a hold of after this because I had actually picked up one of the third printings when it had first come out, and that was probably a good 6 to 12 months ago when I actually picked this game up, I'm thinking. And it sat on my shelf, and we've talked about playing it multiple times. I've taken it down with me to a couple of times during our 24-hour play sessions, but I had never spent enough time to learn the rules to be able to teach to everybody. But now that a couple of us have actually played it, I wouldn't mind actually trying to get it played maybe during tabletop day might be a good day to actually pull this game out and let it hit the table so we have a good five players playing this one. Uh, Dracula was successful. We actually did come close to killing him. I think at one time he had... 11 or 12 damage on him most of that was actually damage from him having to go into the water and travel through the different waterways that are around the outside of the board because we were hot on his trail at a couple of times and he jumped into the water and then hopped back on land and then jumped back into the water and Every time Dracula moves into the water, he's taking two damage, and then every time he moves between another water spot, he takes damage. So I was kind of happy that he was doing that, but then um, we actually did, um, Mina actually did get him cornered in one of the towns, and we had a nice little combat there. We had several combats between um, myself and several vampires. I actually did only get into one combat, I think, one time with Dracula, which was kind of an interesting combat um, before... Mina actually kind of bit it, and several of my characters actually died a couple of times, which I was kind of bummed at, but they go to the hospital, and essentially on the next turn, they just move from the hospital into the town, so it's almost just like you're sitting out for a round with that character, but um, I was getting kind of unlucky because I was trying to do my movements during the day because the heroes... Um, the you know the hunters can only move during the daytime at night they do get a night action but you can pretty much only maybe take like rail tokens during the night or you can actually do a uh, supply action which is if you're in a larger city you can actually draw 
an item card, and then you can draw an event card. But at night, you are drawing the event card from the bottom of the deck rather than the top of the deck. So if it's a hunter card, you'll get to keep it. But if it's a Dracula card, um, you have to give that card to Dracula. And it seemed the first couple of times I was drawing those cards from the bottom of the deck at night, Dracula was getting a handful of event cards, which was not helping me out any at the beginning of the game. But um, once I got to the point where I did get some events into some of the different characters' hands, we were making some good um, leeway on him. Um, but then the Fury of Dracula just kind of hit, and it got to 13, and before we knew it, the game had ended, and the Hunters did not prevail against Dracula. But it's a really cool game. It's I don't play too many games like this, where you're doing a one-versus-many deduction-style games. And Jim was asking me if I actually like this type of game, and I do because it's it's a little bit different type of thinking style of game than your normal worker placement or strategy type of game because you're you're really kind of just guessing at the beginning and trying to spread your people out to try to maybe just find one of the, you know, layers of Dracula and then try to get on his trail to see, you know, deductively where he possibly moved to and where he's at and then try to have the right type of cards. And that's I sometimes when I was getting into the combats, like the first combat I had gotten into with Mina, she just didn't have the right type of item cards to be too successful in a combat. And it just it just went poorly for me in a couple of combats. There were other times where I was actually playing cards and getting them right. And when you when you're doing combat each character, Dracula and the Hunter, is has a hand of cards, and you're playing a card face down, and then you're flipping them over simultaneously, and then you're seeing, actually, there's a couple of icons in the upper left-hand corner of the cards. You're seeing if any of those um, icons on the Hunter card matches the card that's on the Dracula card. If so, the Dracula card is basically negated, and then the Hunter gets to go through the action that's on his card. If you're if you play a card that doesn't match any of the icons on the Dracula card, Dracula gets to activate his card, and then the hunter gets to play his card and do his action. So you're essentially trying to figure out what type of cards Dracula is going to be playing in which order. And I was just, the first couple of comments, I was just guessing incorrectly. It's, you know, it's just a random guess that you're taking. So it's, there's really no science, I think, to the game in that regard. But there are some cards that will have more icons on them that give you more of a chance of, you know, stopping that card from activating that Dracula is actually playing. But if you get a chance to play Fury of Dracula, there are three editions of the game out there. Like I said, we were playing the third edition. The board and the and the whole play style of the game, uh, the board is just gorgeous, I will say. Um, they did a great game or great time with just the look of the board. It just has a real nice look to it. Uh, sometimes it's a little hard to read some of the different cities that you're on because of the font that was utilized um, on there and I think with some of the lighting that we had at the store. But um, the cards and everything are just great, very thematic game, really kind of makes you feel like you're actually chasing and trying to hunt down Dracula. Um, so Fury of Dracula, I'm game, like I said. I'm going to take down with me maybe the tabletop day and maybe we can get a five-player game of that going. It's a game that will last several hours, so it's probably a good time maybe to hit that to the table. So... If you, have, if you ever have a chance to play this one and you like deduction-style games like this, definitely give this one a shot. I'm glad that I picked it up, and I'm, it's definitely a game that will be staying in my collection. All right, let's jump over to a little bit of what I want to play now. 
Um, we're going to mention a video game first. Persona 5 is actually coming out, I believe, this week. And I still need to get through Persona 4 Gold and on my Vita, and I really need to start playing that a little bit more than I have been. Um, I would like to finish that before Persona 5, so I don't think I'm going to be picking up Persona 5 right off the bat when it comes out. But I know several of my friends are really looking forward to this one, and I'm really looking forward to a new Persona 5. Uh, I really like this series of games from Atlas Games, and um, this one looks and sounds like it's pretty good from what I've been hearing and reading on some of the different video game podcasts. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And then a couple of my friends, um, while we were playing um, Colonists the other day, got in a game, a couple of games, I believe, of Castles of Caladale. This is a new game from Renegade Games, and I saw them. This is a tile placement where you're building essentially like a castle, and I guess there's a couple of different ways you can play the game. You can either play it where you're taking turns building the castle, or there's a real-time aspect to the game. They said the real-time aspect of the game was actually really fun, but very chaotic, as most real-time games are. The art on this one is really crazy. It's really cartoony and looks great. When I saw this one, I said I need to play this one. I definitely want to see how this one plays and see if this one makes it into my collection or not. I really enjoy a lot of the Renegade Games games, so... Definitely can't wait to hopefully maybe get this one to the table next week. I can talk to a couple of people who played it last week into teaching this one, and we will see how that one goes. So when we play that one, I'll let you know what I think about it. But that's about it for this week. I've been talking here for quite a while, so let's jump into the closing part of the show. As always, you can send me some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send those emails to what I'm playing now at gmail.com. You can also join us in some conversations over in our board game geek guild. We are guild number two, four, four, zero on Twitter. You can follow me at what I'm playing now. Don't forget to drop the G. Like I always say our Facebook page is what I'm playing now. Just do a search for that on Facebook. Our Google plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus sign. What I'm playing now podcast. And then as always our Twitch channel is switch.tv slash what I'm playing now. I'm going to be editing the podcast here very quickly and then packing up and heading down to play some Arkham Horror Living Card Games. So until next week, everybody knows what they need to go do. Go play some games, and then let me know what you're playing now. Thanks for joining me for another episode, everybody. Have a great week, and I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>